You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Wow, good morning. So great to see you. Wes said it, I'll say it. If Pete were here, he would cry it. It's just so good to see you. If you're uh, joining us online, it's great to have you with us. How about a little curiosity poll? This is your first time back since COVID. Raise your hand, maybe. Wow, awesome. So glad to have you. It's just great. COVID has taught us a lot, and we've all been through a lot. One of the things that COVID has taught many of us is when church was sort of always available as an option, it might have been easy to take for granted. And when it wasn't available as an option, like so many things in life, once we don't have it, we begin to realize how significant it is to be together. So I wanted to take a moment before I get into my message this morning, because many of us have experienced significant things in the last year plus. And we've had conversations about this on our staff. I've had conversations with different people who are part of the church. So if you look under your chair, you're gonna find a little batch of post-it notes and a pen. And here's what I would love to do if you would like to do it. Since March 1st last year, I'll use that as the date when we uh, entered the cloud of COVID, we're gonna invite you to write down one or two significant life events that have happened in your life since March 1st. And then we're gonna invite you to post them on the wall outside here. And it's gonna be a way for us as a body, as a congregation, to share some of the life of what's been happening in our lives together. We've had a few who did it who got here earlier this morning, and I've already seen what's on the wall, and it's incredibly moving. You can write your name on it if you want to. You don't have to write your name if you'd rather not. But write it there, and then when you leave this morning, you're going to see these post-it notes on the wall. Just put it up on the wall. Our prayer team is going to be in this week spending time praying through all of the content that's written on these post-it notes. But I think that something powerful can happen when we all see so much of what's been happening in our lives, when we haven't known it, haven't been together, and haven't been able to share it. So, one or two significant life events that have happened since March 1st. Write your name on it if you'd like, not if you would prefer. And now what I want to do is ask you to stand with me, and I just want to take some time to pray as we are rebuilding and re-emerging from this time. Our Father God in heaven, you are the one in whom we've placed our trust and our faith. You're the root system of our lives. You're the foundation of our being. You are our hope. You are our life giver. You are our forgiver. You are the one who binds us together with Jesus Christ and with one another. Lord, we have all been through, and we know it's not over, but we feel the encouraging winds of positive progress. We've been through such a deep time. Lord, you've shown your faithfulness to us. You are present wherever we are by your Holy Spirit, whether we happen to be together or not. Lord, we pray for one another in this season of life. 
People have lost loved ones. Members of our body have died from COVID. Spouses are missing spouses. Small groups are missing people. Lord, in the midst of that sadness, would you anchor our hearts in the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the irreplaceable reality that is transcendent and changes our lives, that Jesus Christ has come into the world, he has been crucified and raised again and is seated at the right hand of the Father and will raise every one of us with him. And so, Lord, we give you our hearts today. We pray for your church all over the world. We pray for your church in Richmond, Virginia. We pray for your church in the U.S. And we pray for our church, Lord, for this church. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to blow through the hearts of our congregation, to give us fresh vision and fresh wind and fresh learning and fresh love for one another, Lord. And now, Lord, give us that joy together as your people, because we know that it's your joy that is our great desire and gift. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our risen victorious champion. Amen. 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 Thank you, everybody. So feel free to write that whenever. And if you want to come in later in the day and write something and put it up there, We would love to have that. Okay, so today's the last of the series. If Jesus Christ is alive, then what are the implications and what does this mean? And if you've been joining us either online or in person, I think you've heard me use the change or the wordplay on if, which is since Jesus is alive, then what are the implications and what does this mean for our lives? And today we're gonna conclude the whole thing, all these weeks that have been building blocks And we're going to talk about the opportunity that we have to cultivate joy, to cultivate joy. So Nehemiah, if you're familiar with this book, or if you're not, it's an Old Testament book about the rebuilding of the broken walls of Jerusalem, a rather timely engagement as we look to rebuild coming out of COVID. In Nehemiah 8.10, after he's led the people through this rebuilding, he says, now go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. That's the phrase right there. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So make that a placeholder. We're going to come back to it. In Revelation 21, we have this picture of what Jesus Christ is showing us when the new order of things has fully come. The new order of things has been inaugurated with his resurrection, and the new order of things will be consummated with his return, and this is a picture of what that new order will look like. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I'll give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. If you're here this morning, I'm hoping you're thirsty and I'm hoping the Spirit of God is going to feed us. 
Many years ago, as a result of something difficult and painful and hard to figure out and hard to explain, my wife and Elizabeth and I began talking about this difficult situation. And somehow the phrase that spilled out of me was, I don't know, that's an unreconciled place. And what I meant when I said that is, I, I can't figure it out. Like logically you could say, but why and but what? And why would God and why did this happen? And how come? And I said, I don't know, it's an unreconciled place. It was about a couple that we know who are dear to us who got divorced, both great people. And we were praying for them and hoping for them to be able to work it out and it didn't work out. And with questions and prayers, I said, I don't know, it's an unreconciled place. Now, yes, their relationship parted and it had elements of being unreconciled, of course. But the questions and everything that come with it just left us without all the answers to sort it out. I don't know, it's an unreconciled place. A couple years later in a hard season of our life, this phrase returned again when we went through the death of a family member and we felt like we were left trying to hold sand in our fingers and it would slip and fall out and we couldn't sort it out. We kept going to God as the foundation of our hope and yes, we found his faithfulness there, but we didn't find all the answers that we longed for and this too became a place that we called an unreconciled place. It's a place where the brokenness of life and the pain and the width and the breadth of sin and its tentacles of impact leave us without being able to sort it out. Something was bigger than us, it was too mysterious for us, and it leaves us small and in something that's just an unreconciled place. In the midst of all of that, if then, if Jesus Christ is alive, then, if Jesus Christ is alive, then the resurrection is the great reconciling act of God. The resurrection is the great reconciling act of God. It's the beginning of the healing of the universe. It's the first fruits of the harvest that is waiting to come. It's the first promise that we have that gives us confidence that the pain, the broken places on the unreconciled places of life are gonna find a reconciling healing one day through the power and the bigness of God. And when we say, well, how are we going to figure that out? The answer is we're not going to figure that out because we're us. Only God's going to figure that out. Only God is big enough for the magnitude and the depth of these challenges and problems that riddle our lives in so many different ways. So as we concluding our series today, the resurrection is the great reconciling event of God. If you know the Bible, you know perhaps in the Old Testament there's many descriptions about what's called the Ark of the Covenant. And God's people were told to make this Ark, this very ornate box, you could call it, and some of the very, very special aspects of God's redemptive work in his people Israel were supposed to be placed in this box. And carrying this box, this ark made of gold and finely crafted, this was the symbol of God's presence with his people. And the things that were in the ark were the marks of the promises of his redemption and the future that he holds for them. And the ark was made with two cherubim. The descriptions are that these cherubim were artistically crafted and they were on both sides of the ark. It's about four feet, five feet long and about two and a half feet wide. And these cherubim were made on both ends facing each other with their wings covering over the ark. When we were reading the gospels this winter, 
Of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we get to John 20 when the women go to the empty tomb. And in John's account of the gospel, it says there were two angels, one on each end of the place where Jesus lay. And I said to Elizabeth, it had to have looked like the Ark of the Covenant. The two angels that were there on both ends, now this empty tomb where a dead body had been laying, now these two angels were there like the new covenant, Ark of the Covenant, which shows that life eternal is the mark of God's redemptive and consuming work. If you knew the scriptures and you walked into that tomb and you saw those two angels, you had to, you must have immediately thought, that looks exactly like the Ark of the Covenant. And the powerful expression of God's promises where there were things in the box is fulfilled in the reality that there was no guy in the box. And this is the expression of the eternal life and the redemptive, consummating work of God, the great reconciling promise to all the unreconciled and broken places in our lives that leave us feeling like we're trying to hold sand and we can't do it. The resurrection in 2 Corinthians 5.19 gives us this picture. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sins against them. Jesus Christ is the reconciling agent of God. In Colossians 1.17, we're told that Jesus existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. I don't know if that feels comforting to you, but it absolutely feels comforting to me. When it feels like things are falling apart, do we have any hope and any promise that there is some reconciling future for us and we get this in the resurrection of Christ? It's a change of course from the brokenness of our world toward the reconciliation of God's great work. Okay, so we've been now, we're seven weeks into the series. I'm gonna give you a quick review of it. Since Christ is alive, then you can have assurance that you truly are a child of God. Since Christ is alive, we can right-size our worry, we can give generously, we can forgive abundantly, we can prioritize relationships and should, we can clarify our residence, as Kyle spoke about last week being heaven, and today we can cultivate joy. We're not living in days that feel very joyful. So to speak about cultivating joy can feel pretty odd. Like, really, we're going to talk about cultivating joy? From my perspective, days that feel joyless would be exactly the time that you want to talk about cultivating joy. And how or why can we do that? And what does it look like in the scriptures? And what is joy really? If Jesus Christ is alive, then we are being invited into Jesus's life. If Jesus Christ is alive, then we're being invited into Jesus's life. John 1, 4 says, in him was life, and that life was a light of human beings. But not only are we being invited into life with Jesus as though he's a friend alongside of us, and if we hang out with him, we'll get a little bit of a life download from him. We're actually being invited into the life of the Trinity. This is the best way I can give you a picture of it. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are always united in a perfect relationship with a glorious love that is constantly buzzing between them. When we're invited into life in Jesus, we're invited into this, right in the middle of the love of the Trinity. Jesus has invited us to be raised into this place. 
And now all of a sudden, our faith turns from something that feels rather one-dimensional, as though we're walking alongside with Jesus, to something that is much more immersive, that we are invited into the center of the love and the power of the Trinity. As someone said to Elizabeth and me recently in a conversation, when life is very difficult, the way we move forward is to live anchored in the Trinity, he said. We live anchored in the Trinity. So it's not just that we walk alongside Jesus, that's a good thing, but there's something much more immersive and more comprehensive that we're being invited into. Dallas Willard said, joy is our portion in his fellowship. Joy goes with confidence and creativity. It's his joy. And that's not a small joy or a repressed joy. It's a robust joy. How about this? Joy is our portion in his fellowship. His fellowship with whom? His fellowship with the Trinity. The fellowship and the love is always moving among the Trinity. Joy is our portion in that. And through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're invited to say yes to him and enter into that 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 becomes our eternal home and the anchor and the placement and the security of our lives. In other words, in the Bible, joy is not something we manufacture. Joy is the essence of God's personality. And so we get it from him. And so the more and the closer we are participating in the fellowship of the Trinity, the greater is our access and our experience of joy. And yes, this does not happen overnight like flipping a switch. It's an invitation into a growing joy. And so this invitation leads us to Revelation's picture of this new order of things. This phrase, the new order of things, gets my attention in such big ways. What's the new order of things? Well, that would suggest that there's an old order of things. What's the old order of things? We're living in it now. The world and its brokenness and pain and strife and anger and fracturing. We're living in the old order, but we've got the promise of the new order to come because the resurrection of Jesus is God's great reconciling event. It's on its way. And what's it going to look like? It's going to be a place where there is no more crying, where every tear is wiped from our eyes. No more death for the old orders passed away. Jesus said, I'm making everything new. In other words, what he's promising us is a healed and reconciled eternity. God, bring it, please bring it. A healed and reconciled eternity for all the broken, unreconciled, fractured places of life. But this joy that's available to us, it's God's joy. You don't whip it up inside of you. We don't have it in us to whip it up. And the more we try to do that, the more frustrated we're going to get because we're going to keep thinking, I've been doing everything I can to whip up a joy recipe inside of me and it ain't cooking. And Yet Psalm 16 tells us that this joy comes from the closeness that we have with God. You make known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. The joy of God is now available to us by Jesus inviting us into the center of the Trinitarian love and fellowship. And this is where we can begin to experience it. But it's also helpful to realize that joy is not an emotion per se. Joy is more like an anchor. And this is where we mistake it. We're looking to conjure it up to be an emotion when in fact it's much more like an anchor. It's the place that holds when life feels like it's falling apart. 
Desmond Tutu, I think you all know who he is, Archbishop from South Africa. He says, joy will make you cry more easily and laugh more easily. When we become self-centered, turning in on ourselves, as sure as anything, we're going to find one day a deep, deep, deep frustration. This is a wise man speaking. I read this quote several times. I'm like, deep, deep, deep frustration. Like one deep would have seemed to be deep enough. Two deeps would have been sufficiently deep. He feels the need to say three deeps, a deep, deep, deep frustration. Okay, so I have a sense that most of us live with balance difficulty. They say that balance can be a problem as you get older, but that's not the kind of balance I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm talking about the difficulty of finding the appropriate balance in so many aspects of life where there are two streams that run together. For instance, grace and truth. This is one we've talked about many times. Very difficult for us to find the balance we tend to fall much more significantly on one or the other. We have a really hard time finding the balance. Or grief and gratitude. How do we find the balance of engaging the griefs of life in a real way, but not getting so imbalanced that we get stuck and lost there? How do we also move toward gratitude? John Eldridge said, every Christian should do two things every day. We should both worship and grieve because doing both of them represents an accurate engagement with life as it really lives and exists. But we have a hard time finding that balance between grief and gratitude, because some people might say, well, you're overdoing your grief, you're getting stuck in it, you're getting lost in it. Somebody else might say, oh yeah, it was hard, I'm not real worried about it, I'm just thanking God for it. Somebody says, dude, you're completely in denial, you are not paying attention to grief. We have a really hard time finding balance with these types of things. How about work and rest? We have a very difficult time finding the appropriate balance. And you could just add category after category after category. So speaking of Bishop Tutu and how he spoke about if we turn to a self-centrism, we're in for a deep, deep, deep frustration. How about the balance between giving due attention to ourselves and getting outside of ourselves? Those two things represent a very challenging balance. This is true for, I think, most of us, but we see this in our culture. And I think today that that balance has gotten way out of whack. We're living in a time where the spirit of the age elevates victimization, outrage, offendedness, woundedness, and self-centeredness. And this is keeping us from joy, and guess what else it's keeping us from? The healing that we so deeply desire. Because once we embrace that spirit of the age that says we're going to focus so deeply on victimization, outrage, and offendedness, our woundedness and our self-centrism, we will lose the capacity to listen to each other. And when we lose the capacity to do that, when we have become so self-centric, as Bishop Tutu says, we're in for a deep, deep, deep frustration, and we are also in for the perfect recipe to lose the capacity to listen to each other. Because our, our elevated sense of victimhood, our elevated sense of outrage and offendedness, we simply can't listen to other sides because we've embraced the spirit of the age and anything that's said will send us flying off the handle. 
The healers in the most difficult times are the joyful people. Like Bishop Tutu, two other men in the last number of years who had been most helpful in the world's strife, particularly in racial strife, have been Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela. These three men, Tutu, Mandela, and King, are all men who are deeply rooted in the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're all men for whom joy was their anchor, not necessarily an emotional feeling that made them feel terrific all the time. It was their anchor. These guys are calling people to rise above victimization, outrage, offendedness, woundedness, and self-centeredness. Now, some people are going to say, well, you're trying to gloss over the problems. Not at all. The problems are real and they have to be addressed. But all idols will rage when they're exposed. And victimization and outrage and offendedness and woundedness and self-centeredness have become an idol in their imbalance and they're keeping us from finding the healing. These three men were profoundly gospel men. They were deeply rooted in the gospel. They were also roundly criticized for not being more strident, not more violent in the pain that lived in the culture. They're also three men who perhaps more than any others are known for bringing healing to the pain and the strife that's been in the world. Kerry Newhoff, blogger, studier of culture, Christian, says an exhausted culture needs an alternative to itself, not an echo of itself. The alternative to the exhaustion of our culture is the joy of the Lord. And that's where people like Dr. Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and Desmond Tutu have made such a profound difference. So how do we cultivate joy when there is plenty to grieve? There is plenty to grieve. How do we cultivate joy when there is plenty to grieve? Well, the word cultivate is intentional. It's not pixie dust and it's not magic. It's like going to the gym for your soul. It will take people who are willing to do the spiritual work to grow our souls into the places of joy. It's to grow our soul in the Trinitarian joy that exists among the Trinity and to place ourselves in the middle of that. That will be available for people who want to cultivate a deep prayer life, who want to cultivate a deep relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and place their soul's home in the midst of the Trinity. J.I. Packer says it this way, to give oneself to hallowing God's name as one's life task means that living, though never a joy ride, will become increasingly a joy road. And so we come to the reality of the invitation of this joy in the salvation that the resurrection of Jesus clarifies for us. In Isaiah 12, verse two through three, for the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he also has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the springs of salvation, Isaiah says to us. In other words, if Jesus is alive, you are invited into this salvation and into this life and into this joy. Listen to how 1 Peter 1 says it. Through Christ, you have come to trust in God and you have placed your faith and hope in God 
because he raised Christ from the dead and gave him great glory. You've placed your faith and hope in God because he raised Christ from the dead. If Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then we place our faith and our hope in God because of Christ's resurrection. So we're coming to the end of this whole series. If Christ is alive, then what are the implications? And here's my invitation, twofold to you. First off, if Jesus is alive, since he's alive, then what step will you take? To go through all of this and engage the resurrection this way and have our lives be completely unchanged, frankly, would be a colossal waste of our efforts. If Jesus Christ is alive, what step will you take? Small step, big step. Maybe it means praying more. Maybe it means making some kind of a resolution in your life. Maybe it means writing a check. Maybe it means changing a job. Maybe it means engaging in some kind of ministry. But it's got to mean something. My encouragement to you as you go from here today is to decide what is at least one thing that will make a difference because Jesus Christ is alive in my life. And then finally, if Jesus is alive, and he is, being invited into this life, my invitation to you, particularly after all that we've been through and all that we have seen, is either to return to give your life to Christ unequivocally and clarifyingly, or to do it for the first time. I have spent, like many of you, a great deal of time praying, thinking, and crying out to God in the last year and a half about COVID, about the church, about society, about racism, about politics, about pain. And here's where I come after a year and a half of that. Jesus Christ alone has the hope that our hearts are so hungry for. I may be wrong. If I am, I'll be the first one to go down with that wrongness. Because believing that Jesus Christ is the hope of our lives is the absolute conviction of my life. And if people say, where do we find hope? The answer is going to be in a deep relationship with Jesus Christ. This is not a superficial platitude. This is not religious cloudiness. This to me is a rigorous invitation to move out of ourselves and move into the life that Jesus Christ offers us. So as we close today, I'm gonna offer a time to pray. And maybe you're here today and you know you know that God has been inviting you to say yes and clear the decks and clear the dabbling and come home to Christ. Or maybe you know that it's been a time of drifting and wandering in the desert and you want to restart this engagement with Jesus Christ and come into the life of the Trinity. Because when we keep grinding on the inside of ourselves, Desmond Tutu says we're in for a, count it three times, deep, deep, deep frustration. And Jesus Christ being alive is our invitation to life. So pray with me, if you will. And if you're in a place where you know that God's inviting you to say yes to Jesus, do that. Lord Jesus Christ, the tomb is empty. The Ark of the Covenant made so many promises about the redemptive work of God. And here we see it accelerated into a new gear. This new covenant promise is a promise of eternal life through Jesus. So now, Lord, for any who want to clear the decks and begin with you, pray these words with me. Lord God, I confess my sin to you. I've lived my life with myself at the center, and I ask you to forgive me through Jesus Christ. 
And Jesus, I am inviting you now today for real and for sure into my life as Lord and Savior. Bring all that fullness of life to me, I pray, both now and forever. In your victory of the empty tomb, I pray. Amen.